This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ross Douthat is one of the most important public intellectuals in the United States these days. You know him as a columnist for the New York Times. Before joining the Times, he was a senior editor for The Atlantic. He's also a student of American culture, the film critic for National Review, and he has appeared regularly on television. He's the author of several books, including Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, Privilege, Harvard, and the Education Ruling Class, and To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. Today, we'll talk about his newest book, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Ross, it takes a certain amount of self-confidence to write a book entitled The Decadent Society. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that word is going to immediately send some flags up that uh, this is something of a cry of the heart. It's also not your first book. How, how do you get to the point where you're writing a book entitled The Decadent Society, How We Became Victims of Our Own Success? Well, honestly, Al, I just turned 40, so I feel that I've now finally reached the age where I can offer sweeping assessments of our civilization just as I sort of, you know, start the start the slow slide towards my own mortality. So that's that's the justification, at least for these kind of making sweeping pronouncements. But I think this is a this is a book that it's trying to explain in a way what I think are two feelings that people have simultaneously about not just America, but sort of Western society, the developed world writ large. And one of those feelings is this sense of crisis and looming disaster everywhere you look and sort of depression, despair, anxiety, which is so much a part of, I feel like, our media atmosphere and the sort of cultural psyche of our times. And then that coexists with this, you know, this sort of statistical reality that by most material measures, Western life has never been better in the sense that we're richer than any civilization has ever been before. We're not collapsing into a 1960s style crime wave. We're not enduring something like World War II or the agony in Vietnam. Um, even with all of the wildness of the Trump era in Washington, in fact, American society overall seems very stable. And so you get a lot of books that are written that are books about crisis. And then you get a certain kind of book written, I would say, Steven Pinker's books yeah. um, are good examples that basically make the argument that no, people are feeling anxious just because the world is changing too fast, but really things are just getting better and better every day. Um, and I'm sort of trying to write in the space between those two diagnoses and say yep. that they basically, they both capture something of what's going on. And what is actually going on is that we are richer than any society has been before. We are, despite what you see on Twitter, pretty stable, but we're also, we also feel like we've come to some kind of cultural and spiritual and political dead end where mm -hmm. Our institutions don't work very well anymore. Uh, people don't believe in the future anymore. People are literally not having children anymore. And the frontiers that people believed in for a long time, including the, the very literal frontier of 
going to the moon and going into space seem closed. And it's sort of like we've, you know, to put it in terms of Genesis, we've filled the earth and subdued it and we don't have any idea what happens next. And it's freaking yeah. us out. And that's, that's what, that's what I'm defining yeah. as, as decadence. Yeah, and we'll talk more about the word, but uh, but the word itself uh, not only implies but contains within itself the idea of decline, and uh, thus it raises the question: What kind of decline? What does the decline mean? But uh, in my own uh, kind of uh, worldview, philosophical, uh, theological, uh, philosophical development, uh, I first became acquainted with the declinists when I was a teenager, trying to to, to figure out the world, and, uh, and and I first really got to them through National Review magazine, of all things. Uh, simply because the magazine was extremely helpful to me, not only because of the arguments it made, but because of the authors it cited. And so, I mean, I just didn't know any better than to go trotting off after those authors. And uh, so whether it's Spingler or whomever else, uh, the problem I had as a teenager when I started reading the literature is that it was completely convincing. Um, and, and then I started to notice something, even as a very young thinker, I'm just thinking, well, you know, the problem is there's declinist the literature in the 16th century. And, of course, there was even in the ancient world. There's declinist literature in the 19th century. There's declinist literature in the 20th century. And I believe all of it. Uh, and yet I'm glad to be living. Uh, <laughs> I was born in 1959. I'm 20 years older than you. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to be living right now uh, in this particular time materially, uh, but not so much morally. And, and so, th- by the way, that's my retort to Steven Pinker. I, I think Pinker's optimism makes perfect sense if you are, as he, a pure materialist, because in purely materialist terms, there can be no doubt uh, that, that we are in a better situation than before. But I, I don't live in a purely material world, and, uh, and I don't think that way, and nor could I buy into what I saw was uh, an un-Christian um, dystopianism. Uh, in much of the declinist literature. And, and I want to tell you, one of the reasons why I appreciate your book, as as in other things you do, is that you're a declinist, but you're not a defeatist. Uh, but I, re- I really do think decadence is, is just about the perfect word. Yeah, and I mean, I think what I appreciate it, um, that I don't seem defeatist, because obviously it's not the most insanely optimistic book, but part of the argument that it makes is that you can have decline or falling off without it inexorably leading to barbarian invasions, Roman palaces being torched, total catastrophe. And that, in fact, it's actually pretty normal historically for civilizations to enter into these periods of stagnation, drift, and repetition, which is sort of part of the definition that I use in the book. And that there are obviously it's not a great time in which to live sort of spiritually and morally and aesthetically, but it's also a time in which there's always the possibility of renewal and Renaissance, which isn't the case once the barbarians have actually showed up and started torching everything. Right. So there are, and it's not a, it's not the dystopia yet. Right. It's a, I think the decadent society has dystopian elements. And, you know, I think I say it late, late in the book that, you know, you could pick different pieces of our society from, you know, the opioid addiction in the heartland um, to, you know, pornography addiction on your smartphones and say, these are all dystopian elements, but they don't hold complete sway. It's still possible to live fruitfully and creatively and 
have a sort of humane existence under decadence, I think. Yeah, and you're not the first to think that, but you think it in a very sophisticated and public way in this book. By the way, I, uh, I finished writing one book about our cultural predicament. It comes out next June, and I'm already working on another one. Which, which uh, that's how fast things seem to be moving. But one of the arguments I'm making in the second one is that I think as a culture, we, we've shifted from rival utopias to rival dystopias. And uh, right now, the, the, the left is operating in, in the United States out of a dystopia in which the right's in charge, and the right's operating out of a dystopia in which the left's in charge. And uh, I think in different ways— uh, <laughs> Uh, both both have now assumed a certain kind of cultural pessimism. I'm certainly certainly if you look at the at the uh, the, the climate change uh, defeatists who are, are looking to say you know human human existence is coming to an end. Um, it, it it is an interesting thing because the word decadence is inherently moral, isn't it? I mean it's it's, it's not just decadence as in a bank account uh, that that's running out. It's decadence as in something that ought not to be lost, that is being lost culturally and morally. Yes, but it's but it's not as simple as everything is getting worse morally across every dimension. Sure. Right? And, and, and it never, implies, never is. It never implies is. some kind of, right, it, impl- it implies a certain kind of futility and stagnation, whereas, you know, there are periods in human history when great, you know, great virtue coexists with great wickedness, right? If you go back to... That would be you know, just about all it, of human history in one sense, yes. Well, that would be all of human yes. history, but, but I'm, I, I'm emphasizing the great, right? Yeah, because if yeah. you go, you know, if you go back to Renaissance Italy, I think, just to, to pick an example, right? I think you could make an argument that it's an era that produced great art, great saints, and some of the wicked, <laughs> some of the wickedest figures sure. imaginable, right? Um, and I think that's you know that holds true of various parts of various parts of the 20th century. And I think what characterizes decadence is more the sense that you know we may be getting morally worse, but we're also we're also sort of mediocre. There isn't the kind of vividness right. of you know the evils that we have are like you know like internet pornography, right? They're not the vivid evil of the Borgias, right, or the de Medicis, uh, they're this sort of private gross evil that people indulge in, uh, you know, by themselves, you know, lit- literally. And, and, except and that's, that's uh, sort of what I want to... Yeah, except for the halftime right. entertainment at the Super Bowl, uh, which, which is, is to me... Uh, <laughs> and by the way, I watched, I, just to be honest, honesty... Is important here. I didn't watch the Super Bowl and I didn't watch the halftime program, but I, I have seen enough of it as uh, people have said. You need to look at this to recognize. I, I do think, as a society, the spectacles even that attract us uh, are, are are a sign of some kind of of moral shift that is taking place in, in ways that I find myself still capable of being shocked. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's generally right. That there's that there is a there's a sort of reality television meets voyeurism yeah. element, a sort of, you know, the sort of circus element in in American life that is much stronger today than it was 60 or 70 years ago and is particularly vivid at our sort of national carnival, yeah. which is basically, yeah. which is basically what the Super Bowl is. Bread and circuses. So, uh, 
you are entering into a, a moving intellectual conversation. You've done that before. We've had conversations on this program about bad religion, how we became a nation of heretics, and, and your book, To Change the Church. Uh, and actually, I want to kind of end with uh, bringing those things together. But, uh, but you're also in conversation with other authors, and, and there are people who live in my mind as well. Uh, Jacques Barzun uh, and uh, his book, From Dawn to Decadence, uh, most importantly, perhaps. And that, yet I can remember the first time I, I read that book. Uh, I, I remember that, uh, that Barzun begins by uh, talking about decadence in, in terms of what he saw as the end of Western civilization. I mean, I think he, he, and he was writing about the end of the 20th century. The book actually came out in 2000. But he said it's not only the end of a century, it's the end of 500 years of civilization. Now, I wonder at some point if just growing old shows up when you, uh, when you have that kind of declinism. But on the other hand, Jacques Barzun was such a cultured man. And by the time he finished his book, he recognized even then in 2000, about 90 percent of what he thought was disappearing was still there. But you did sense that 10 years later, there would be 80 percent of what he was talking about and you know, 20 years later, uh, we, we, we clearly understand that what he saw receding was indeed receding. But as you, as you point out in your book, it can be a very long melt. Um, and, uh, and decadence can be, at least for many people, a, a rather comfortable existence. But it's, it's the existence on a civilization that is running down rather than one that is, uh, that, that is becoming more energized and, and moving toward the future. Right. And this is, I mean, look, I, I, I'm very frank that I'm sort of stealing my definition of decadence from Barzun, who is Fair infinitely enough. more cultured and knowledgeable than any newspaper columnist can ever hope to be. But I think he was, I think it's that, that point that you just made that comes across clearly in his definition, where he says, you know, the forms of art as of life seem exhausted. The stages of development have been run through institutions yep. function painfully. I mean, what what better distillation of American right, politics right. could you have? Repetition and frustration are the intolerable result. And, you know, Barzun in his book spends a lot of time in high culture. And, you know, he's covering the whole sweep of Western history, as, as you said. And I'm, you know, I'm a movie critic as my as my sort of moonlighting gig for National Review. And so I spent a certain amount of time in my own book on sort of middle brow culture, right. where I think that you can see the same tendency. This sort of drift and repetition is basically the description of all of Hollywood for the last 10 or 15 years as, you know, sort of franchises and spectacles. You know, you're talking about spectacles. There's nothing that's more spectacle oriented than the Marvel Cinematic Universe and mm. the endless sequels and reboots and recycling of properties that were basically invented in between 1940 and 1970 or 1940 and 1980, right? That you have, right. you know, comic books and science fiction and Lord of the Rings, all these genres come out of what I think seems in hindsight like this last great burst of Western creativity, which we've then been sort of even at the middle brow level, even at the level of Hollywood blockbusters have been living off ever since. And, and that's, I, I think that's sort of, so, so my book is trying to move between, you know, DC politics and economic stagnation on the one hand and 
just, you know, things like how the Star Wars movies even illustrate decadence, that you go from the original Star Wars movies are, you know, not not high art by any stretch of the imagination, but a kind of, you know, imaginative remix and reinvention of classic science fiction. And then by the time you get to the the sequel trilogy that we've just sort of endured and lived through, it's literally just recycling what George Lucas did 40, now 40, 50 years ago, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. So even even there, or maybe especially there, I think you can see these these patterns setting in. Um, and maybe once the baby boom generation passes away, <laughs> some of that maybe there'll be some room for for more dynamism. Yeah, but interestingly, at the moment, it's hard to see it. Yeah, the latest or uh, the last Star Wars movie uh, seems to have attracted reviews. Uh, across the political spectrum, basically coming to the same conclusion. Evidently, this storyline ran out before this movie came out. Yes. Um, yes. Well, and, and yeah. that's, I think that people, and, and this is true in politics too, people recognize decadence. It's not that people love it, right? I mean, they, you know, maybe they like the repetition for a little while, but I think the same thing in politics, that the appeal of both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, I think, can be explained with people feeling deeply dissatisfied with where we've ended up. I mean, make America great again, right? It's basically a slogan that says America used to be on this path towards the bold future. And we got, you know, we got sidetracked somewhere, but maybe we can, we can do it again. And in the same way on the left, I think Sanders is basically telling people on the left, look, you thought the socialist dream died with Ronald Reagan or, the end of the Cold War, but in fact, we can bring it back to life. So there's, there's, and I think there's, that desire is powerful. I'm just skeptical that it can actually, at the moment, lead to the transformations that people are hoping for. Yeah, and uh, also when you you think about the various scenarios, and I'm here kind of cheating going to the end of your book, when you talk about various scenarios, one of them complete catastrophe, the other renaissance, and uh, and the third kind of just the continuation of the same thing in... in, uh, as long as it lasts, uh, as a Christian theologian and uh, and observer of the culture and history, I just have to say I, I don't think the resources for Renaissance are here. Now I can hope they they might emerge, but they're uh, those have to be moral resources. And by that I don't just mean a simplistic list of moral rules. I mean there there, there has to be a set of commitments and virtues that uh, and a moral horizon that is just uh, just largely absent. Uh, and by the way, you mentioned Reagan. Uh, I, I reminded uh, some friends the other day that Ronald Reagan used the same uh, phrase. He didn't use it as centrally as Donald Trump does, make America great again, but he did use it. But I think the difference is Ronald Reagan did it with a smile as if, you know, we're up to this, we can do this. Uh, and, uh, and, and you know, this is, a, this is a fight I want you to come and join me in, uh, kind of the happy warrior like Roosevelt. And, and I, I, I think President Trump representing the times, not so much himself, but representing the times is speaking to voters who think, uh, no, th- this, this is now such a cultural uh, emergency. Uh, there's no smile in this. It's, uh, there's an urgency, maybe even a, a moral panic of sorts. Yeah, and I think that, that Trump, like, again, like Sanders on the left, is speaking to a smaller group than Reagan was. I mean, Reagan was right. fundamentally a 60% president in the sense that it was it was still possible under Reagan to build the kind of 
majorities that we were used to from American history, right? That, you know, Roosevelt enjoyed and Eisenhower enjoyed. Um, And like basically every president of the last 20 years, Trump is a 50% to slightly below president. And if he has a democratic successor, it will be the same way. And that's sort of the power of, in a way, the power of stalemate, right? The point that you made about how left and right both feel like the other side has all the power they're right in the sense they're both right in the sense that right now republicans control much of government and democrats are shut out less so since the midterms but still somewhat true but liberals control the culture almost completely they control the universities and the newspapers and um, not every newspaper but but most of them and you know the movie studios and so on and so you have this 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 conflict where each side has its own kind of power neither side can figure out how to bring their power to bear in the other sphere and so both sides are sort of they both think the apocalypse is upon them but neither yeah. of them are actually winning it's a, yeah, strange, but it's I, a very I, strange thing i think I, I i i may differ a bit in that uh, i i think the, the progressives are winning i just think they're not winning as fast as they want to win because I think it's pretty easy to foresee that, that uh, the future is unlike the present in the sense that uh, with the changing demographics of the country, the opportunities for a, uh, a conservative uh, political movement to capture more than 50 percent becomes less likely. I, th- I, I think it, 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 it's an obstacle that uh, the left thought it had done away with. Uh, at least eight years previous to 2016, but I think I think that's right in the sense that the culture has shifted leftward yeah. in a meaningful way in the last 10 or 15 years in a way that I think conservatives did not expect when George W. Bush was president. And part of liberalism's problem is that liberals have shifted leftward even faster, yeah. so they haven't gained as much political power from this shift as they think but but no i think i think that i think that shift is real but i guess i'm i'm still skeptical and you can you know you can sort of tell this in the book yeah. of like our our mutual friend rod Dreer, who wrote yeah. the benedict option and writes a lot about the decline of american christianity i think the decline he's describing is real but i don't think it's quite as terminal as he does i think instead there's this sort of consolidation of American Christianity, conservative Christianity around a core that's pretty resilient, but doesn't know how to then necessarily influence the wider culture. So it yeah. gets back into this dynamic of stalemate. Yeah, and and um, and our, our Rod would out, probably disagree. Yeah. Well, and and I I, I guess uh, uh, intellectually I'm with Rod. Uh, attitudinally, <laughs> I'd like to be more with you. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, we all kind of live in multiple worlds at the same time, but, uh, I, my theological tradition is solidly Augustinian and, uh, and, and as an Augustinian, uh, I have to believe that basically all the Aquinas are right, uh, but that God's common grace actually, because of his love for his human creatures, mitigates the, uh, the consequences of that, uh, of that decline and uh and 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 sometimes brings uh unexpected order out of disorder and so i i'm always praying that god will uh that, that god will move in in our times in ways that uh, that aren't explicable by the moral resources here at the moment uh 
And as you say, it's 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 not an even. It's not like everything's in decline uh, any more than it was true that everything was in ascent at at any point. Uh, just to take everything from civil rights to uh, uh, antibiotics, I'm I'm really glad I was born in 1959 and not 1859. Uh, there, there, there's a sense in which I'd love to live in a Victorian house, but I don't want to live with Victorian medicine. And I want to be honest about that. I think, I think that's quite reasonable. Um, and I also think that, you know, what you say about Providence is it's essential for sort of understanding the unpredictability of the future, right? That, you know, one of the, we were talking about, about Rome a little bit earlier and, and, the a couple of I have a couple of quotes in the book, one from G.K. Chesterton and one from W.H. Auden, both about sort of yep. the dynamics in the Roman Empire around the time when Jesus was born, when it was this sort of world empire that had conquered its own known world and sort of expanded as far as it could go. And like ours, like our civilization, didn't really know what to do next. And Chesterton's line is, it was the end of the world, and the worst of it was that it need never end. Yeah. Um, and and Auden's, Auden's line is, you know, what terrifies us about the Roman Empire is not that it finally went smash, but rather that it lasted for four centuries without yeah. creativity, warmth, or hope. And yeah. those are pretty pessimistic lines, but in fact, they're describing the age in which Christianity was born. Right. Right. That, right. You know, out of this period of decadence when no one was paying attention to the provinces of Judea, this transformative thing was happening. And that, I mean, just as both as Christians and just as students of history, that reality has to make you aware that what you, the decadence you see is not necessarily the only thing that's happening. Right. And, and uh, I think Odin is uh, absolutely uh, indispensable, frankly, um, always close at hand uh, on my shelf. Uh, the line and the word in in uh, that particular stanza that has always haunted me is the word uh, warmth, you know, that, that, that it, it, it is a decadence uh, or a, a social cultural moment without warmth. And uh, I, I, I don't think Americans anticipated that. Uh, you know, I, I, I find that uh, most of the people I talk to, uh, both Christians and non-Christians, are, uh, are are feeling kind of brutalized by what's going on in the society with everything from the internet and social media to all the rest. Uh, there's there's not a whole lot of warmth in uh, in the digital universe. That's for sure. No, the digital the digital, which all came after the Jacques Barzun book that we've been quoting. Yep. Right? I mean, he he was writing just as the internet was getting underway, but the digital I think has mostly extended and accentuated these trends towards atomization, isolation, the, you know, the, the, the death of community, the death of warmth. And it's this sort of odd dynamic because on the one hand, it's the one great innovation of the last 20 years, right? Strip away yeah. the internet and we're, it looks like we're in a kind of technological stagnation waiting for the self-driving cars that are never actually going to get here because they can't drive in the rain, right? Right. Well, so, I, I want my but, own air taxi. I was promised that as a kid. Right. No, the flying cars haven't happened. The moon bases haven't happened. We've, we've stopped inventing new antibiotics. We, our life expectancy yep. has plateaued, but at least we have the Internet. But then, in fact, the Internet has sort of frozen us 
into these, yeah. you know, these sort of pools of narcissists and these sort of maddening social media dynamics. And that's, I think, that's something that's, I think, become clearer, especially just over the last 10 years, as we've sort of recovered from the Great Recession. We went through this period of sort of crazy historical events in the 2000s, where you have the dot-com bust, and then 9-11, and then the Iraq War, and then the Great Recession. And actually, less has happened in the 10 years since. But we've sort of come to realize that, you know, that the 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 gadgets that we were embracing back then, the iPhones and Facebook and everything else aren't necessarily, one, they aren't necessarily making the world a better place because the Chinese government can use them to enforce totalitarianism as easily as anyone can use them to spread freedom. And two, they may be making us more isolated, more unhappy, less likely to date and marry and have yeah. kids. And, and that's, but again, it's not, they're also, they don't necessarily bring about collapse right people who you teenagers like this is one of my favorite examples that teenagers now are better behaved than they were when i was a kid and probably when you were a kid they're less likely to drive drunk they're They're also less happy though i mean in in the sense yeah in the sense of because they're on they're on their phones they're in these these safe they're lonely horribly lonely yeah that that yeah and that's sort of but that's that i think too is sort of what i'm trying to get at with the phrase decadence that it's not the crime wave in the city burning, it's everything's stable, everything's peaceful, but everyone knows something is wrong. Yeah, and you know, uh, one of the things that uh, that you do well in your book, especially when you write about stagnation, is, uh, is, is bring some disparate strands of an argument together, and they, they need to be together. Uh, you, you know, I, when I read Robert Gordon's uh, book, uh, The Rise and Fall of, uh, of American Growth, um, I actually had to take a walk after about 100 pages uh, because I, I hadn't thought about our uh, our moment quite as he wrote about it. And and I can still remember when reading one sentence because I was born in 1959, and he makes a sentence basically that in 1959, uh, when the, uh, the Boeing 707 was developed, human beings were able then to fly at about 600 miles an hour. Uh, you know, a, a century before, the train had transformed – uh, humanity, but but not av- available to many. It's really only in a matter of decades. Human beings went from the the speed of their feet or the speed of horse uh, to the the speed of six hundred miles an hour. But as he says, human beings aren't going any faster than that. You know, sixty years later, and that's my lifespan right now. I'm looking at that, going, you know, that's that's not what I thought I was buying into as a space age kid in Florida uh, in the 1960s. Uh, this uh, this economic stagnation is a lot bigger than uh, the last three quarters of the Dow. Yeah, and it's I mean what you're describing is a lot like uh, this essay I quote by the sci-fi writer Neil Stevenson, where yeah. he's talking about watching the moment when I think it was the Columbia, the space shuttle that was right. carried on a plane across the country from either either Texas or Florida to oh, yeah. D.C. to go in the Air and Space Museum. And I, I remember when this happened. Sure. I was probably, probably 25 or 30, but it was this moment where, you know, a sort of moment of communal celebration and Americans are looking up and watching this symbol of American greatness soar overhead. But in fact, it's, you know, the end. It was a end. funeral. The, it was a funeral cortege. And, yeah. And, and Stevenson says, I'm watching this on my iPad, right? I'm watching this on my amazing technological yep. device, which is, in fact, 
better and cooler than the rabbit ears TV that I watched the moon landing on. And yet it feels like this huge failure that we can have these amazing simulations of space and space travel, but there's a ceiling above us that we haven't been able to break through. Serving as an op-ed writer for the New York Times is a very lofty perch in America's civilizational hierarchy. But it's not only a place from which to write, it is also a stance from which to see. And Ross Douthat sees a very great deal. That's what he's telling us about as he thinks about these things in his newest book. Well, you talk about the sense of resignation uh, that comes from this. And in fact, uh, in your chapter, The Closing of the Frontier, you talk about that in kind of big canvas terms. I have to tell you, and uh, so I guess this is kind of going on the record, uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary thought that your most powerful quote comes from Tony Soprano, uh, something, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> a certain irony in that. But uh, but you quote Soprano, and, and by the way, you engage with popular culture, uh, the middle brows you suggest, I, I, I think more insightfully, anyone else I know, but you, you, you cite Tony Soprano's lament quote, it's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that, and I know, but lately I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end, the best is over, end quote. Now, he was talking about the mafia, but there's a sense in which I think about that sometimes about the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, American evangelicalism, uh, and, and, and larger. There's a sense in which I feel like I didn't come in at the beginning, but uh, I have a feeling that it's going to be a lot tougher for those who come behind me. I mean, I, I don't, I guess you should just leave that quote there and it can be the headline grab from our There it is. There it is. Um, but no, and that's part of, part. one of the points I try and make about pop culture is that The, the Sopranos is an example of how even our best shows, the sort of golden age of television that everyone talks about, which really did produce some great shows, are shows that themselves are grappling with decadence. The, yeah. You know, the Soprano family is, they're a, a mafia family, but part of what's appealing about the show is they're in other ways, they're just a very normal, upper middle class, New Jersey, Italian American right. family at the end of, at the end of the 20th century. And what Tony says there applies to the mob, but I think also applies to the general spirit of our age. You know, in, in terms of this uh, kind of level of culture, you make a, a parallel. You, you you make it kind of in half, but to kind of fill it out a little bit. We used to be a civilization that produced a C.S. Lewis, but now we've got Philip Pullman. We used to be a civilization that produced J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, but now uh, George R.R. R. Martin. And uh, I'm not so concerned about the individuals, uh, but about the, the mythology, the sagas, uh, the story of civilization that they tell. And, uh, and, and I, I would only describe—in uh, fact— Sterility would be a, a perhaps not adequate term, uh, not dark enough about the, the kind of dystopia of Pullman and, uh, and Martin. But I, I want to go to sterility in the sense you use it in your book, uh, because this is just one of the most haunting issues uh, that I think about every single day. Um, I, I can remember years and years ago uh, hearing a lecturer talk about how civilizations emerge and, and this, this particular speaker said, 
you have to you have to understand that pre-civilization there is the urge to reproduce and civilization basically grows out of what is simply innate which is this desire to reproduce of of adults to have children and yet we are becoming a self-sterilized not only society but i mean for crying out loud you talk about the west uh, for all kinds of reasons, Japan is perhaps in the greatest emergency. This has to be a deep, soul-significant moment for the world. It's a very, very strange thing. And, and it's, again, it's, it's striking in part because it was only 40 or 50 years ago that the great panic of the yeah. world's elites was that there were going to be too many babies that the developed world especially was going to be overpopulated and this was going to lead to, you know, a civilizational crash. And so we had to get out ahead of it. And, you know, if you watch, like there's a Netflix documentary on China's one child policy. That's yeah, absolutely. absolutely harrowing yeah. to watch what in the most extreme form in countries like India and China with Western support people did to try and get out ahead of this supposed crisis. And two generations later, with the exception of Africa, where population is still growing rapidly, we everything has flipped over, and it's a crisis of sterility, of senescence, of aging, and people not getting married, not having children, um, and it's accelerating in the U.S. Right, the U.S. was this outlier up until the Great Recession, where we were still had fertility rates that were about at replacement, and now we've converged with. Western Europe and East Asia, but then parts of East Asia have gone further. Uh, and even Japan was long the outlier, but other countries in East Asia are now even worse than Japan. South Korea's fertility rate is one, yeah. basically, which means that if you, it means for every two South sure. Koreans, there will be one child, which is just extraordinary. And no one can quite figure out, I mean, why it's happened in the sense it's clear why fertility has fallen overall. You know, we don't live in an agrarian economy, infant mortality rates are lower, but why it's settled at 1.4 or 1.6 instead of 2.2 or 2.3 is it's, it's a general crisis that nobody I think understands or is clear on the solution to. And clearly it has something to do with moral and spiritual and religious questions. Yeah. Uh, I, and the saddest thing about it is, is that the, on that issue alone, uh, it's really hard to imagine where recovery would come from. Uh, because, and, and by the way, the, 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 the problem that you, you make very clear and that is becoming uh, haunting to us all is not just that there are fewer babies, it's that there's a massive increase in the number of old people. And, um, and I, I think the population control people uh, the the Paul Ehrlichs and all the rest are, are writing the their own dystopian uh, uh, pictures in the late sixties and the seventies, and, and with the support with the support of of, of the cultural elites and, and frankly coercion, when it comes to places like China, the the reality is that uh, they didn't really think about the extension of life expectancy taking place at the same time, and uh, you know. None of us knows what it's like to live in a society in which there are so few people who are in their generative periods. No, it's it's unprecedented in world history. And it, it's, I think it's something that is felt all over the place. It's felt in 
things like, you know, there's all this talk about how college students today are so fragile and are, you know, they get characterized as snowflakes by people who are criticizing them. And there's a lot of concern about their mental health and suicide rates. And, you know, one thing about today's college kids is that they are less likely to grow up with lots of siblings than any human generation in the past. Right. right? There's yeah. this whole form of socialization from large families where, you know, I can see, I don't have a huge family, but I have three kids and I can see them sort of in a weird way, toughening each other up. Sure. Um, and sure. just that kind of thing across the life cycle, the disappearance of these dense networks of cousins and, yep. you know, and that, that people took for granted. And I don't know if you've seen the Quentin Tarantino movie that's nominated for best picture once upon a time in America, but it's, it's set in 1969 in Hollywood and it's about, you know, the moment basically before the Charles Manson murders. And one of the striking things watching that and watching all of the, all of the flashbacks to that era for for the moon landing is America was such a young country. Oh yeah, absolutely. The difference between America in the sixties and America today in terms of, in terms of the age, you know, the, the population distribution, the size of the baby boom generation and their youth then. And, that youth was destructive in many ways. The 60s were a period of turbulence, of chaos, of disruption, but they were also a period of dynamism and change Absolutely. and transformation. And and that's yeah. just much harder for a society with our age distribution to say nothing of whatever things will look like in 40 years to imagine or achieve. Yeah, I was showing someone some pictures of my family, a very young person, uh, pictures of my family. And... Uh, and I, I, I was one of four. And so the pictures are with the other families of our larger family uh, who have three and four and five. And you look at that and you and the, the, these young people look at those photographs as if they're looking at some kind of, uh, you know, moment in time that they, they really can't imagine. But I can also right. tell like you, you're the, like you're yeah. the like you were the Amish or something. Yeah, right, right. And and you know, I I I was talking with, uh, and these are very, by definition, uh, let me say, uh, they, they they were very intelligent young people. But we were talking about the fall in the birth rate and all the rest, and they they were looking for all the reasons. I said, well, let me just state the obvious, which hasn't been put on the table. Uh, technology brought about. Uh, I mean, because, you know, if you look at the birth control movement, even in the early 20th century, it was largely ineffectual because it was uh, it was theory without technology. But with the development of the pill uh, and, of course, subsequent developments, it's uh, it was a theory with a technology. And, uh, you know, speaking as I, I remember, I, uh, I wrote a piece for First Things in response to, I guess it was the 40th anniversary uh, of the Pope's declaration on uh, on contraception. And, uh, you know, the, the fact is, uh, you know, we, we, we can, and evangelicals just didn't think seriously about that issue. Uh, you know, the, the Pope shocked the church, evidently, the Catholic Church, uh, by coming down as he did. But the fact is that, you know, the, the barn door was open for American Protestants and evangelicals who thought that if it's technological and it's available, it's as morally significant as taking an aspirin. Yeah, it was a it was a remarkable technological shock, and that came at a moment I think where it was sort of a perfect intersection of a new technology with a cultural shift, where you had figures like 
Hugh Hefner and sure. Kinsey and yeah. others sort of preparing the ground for a kind of revolt against the conformism of the 50s, basically. But what's striking, too, is that that I think some kind of fertility shift after the pill and after the 50s was inevitable. Right. But it's the scale and permanence of the change that is so striking, right? It's normal for for you know a conservative era to be followed by a more liberal one. It's normal for an era where you know you suddenly have a a soaring fertility rate to be followed by a falling off. But what's striking is in in so many ways we've sort of gotten stuck somewhere in 1975 or so, right? And and this is and you know you see this not just in in fertility itself, but you know talking about religion and Catholicism. I mean, so many debates that are hap- that happen within the churches, within evangelicalism, within Catholicism under Pope Francis, feel like the same debates that were kicked off by the 60s. And it's like we can't somehow get beyond them. We can't figure out what comes next. We're just doomed to be arguing about contraception, divorce, <laughs> abortion, you know, yeah. and <laughs> for the next 50 or 100 years. Well, I mean, I, it's hard for me to imagine it's only 50 or 100 years, uh, you know, if, if history continues, I have to say as an evangelical Christian. But uh, but nonetheless, I mean, so let, let me just offer a suggestion as an evangelical. If, if you look at the argument of Humanae Vitae, um, I don't think uh, Paul VI understood quite how the impact the contraception would have. I think John Paul II in Evangelium Vitae uh, understood it much more clearly, and that is, if it, it shifts the equation to why would we have a child? Is it morally right to have a child? I mean, even where people aren't thinking in self-conscious terms of a moral calculus, you know, the decision now basically is to have a child, whereas throughout all of human history, uh, the decision was to have sex. Uh, marriage and sex and babies went together. Um, I think I think John Paul II understood that breaking that link um, probably is the greatest explanation. I can't come up with anything better. Yeah, I think it shifted it shifted a cultural default. Yep. It shifted an assumption of a strong link between three things: sex, marriage, and family. Um, that had been shifted before in various times and places. People did, you know, there were forms of contraception before the 60s, and fertility rates did rise and fall. But, but I agree, it shifted it in a more profound way and created, it created a cultural expectation yeah. that, for, well, I mean, I think a part of it is just, it created this expectation that fertility could be, could just be more controlled than before. And with that expectation came the idea that you could just plan to have kids, I think you see this in the generations that came afterwards, that you could plan to have kids in this extremely narrow window, right? That you could, you know, spend your whole, your teens and your 20s and your early 30s and your mid-30s getting settled, and then there'd be this five-year window where respectable people would have kids. And that's, I mean, I think that's how at least upper-middle-class life is set up in America today. That's the expectation. And the problem is that, you know, human life doesn't really work like that. Um, people, uh, the human body you know, they doesn't don't work with like that. The human that. body doesn't yes. work like that, right? People right. don't, they don't find the right person to marry or they find the right person and think it's too soon. And so they don't marry them. And, 
and yeah, and women, women obviously have a, even with, even with, um, assisted reproductive technologies, there's still just these limits. Uh, and a lot of the discussion on the left right now, there's more discussion now on the left about sort of this crisis of marriage and family than there was 10 or 15 years ago when it was seen as just a kind of right wing issue. But a lot of the discussion there is about this in a way. Right. Um, except that people can't imagine going all the way back <laughs> to New Testament sexual ethics. Uh, nope, I, I, I don't see that on the horizon. While we've got you for just a moment, I, I have to shift gears, uh, sort of. It's actually just a continuation of the same conversation. Uh, we uh, had one of these conversations about your book of two years ago, To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. And uh, that was one of the most uh, uh, interesting conversations I've had in this entire series. And uh, I, I also had a chance to speak to Southern it. Baptists uh, just even earlier today. And one of the things I said was, I, I, I think what we we have to understand is that the big building years of this denomination took place when we thought the culture was moving to us, or at least we thought we were moving together. And it, it's becoming more and more clear that that is not the case and hasn't been for some time. And uh, I, I think about traditionalist Roman Catholics uh, that I know so well, and uh, you know, I, I think under especially John Paul II and Benedict XVI, but especially John Paul II, there was the sense that you know the Church is uh, is moving, and because of the power of the Roman Catholic Church in Western civilization, that we have this powerful leverage to try to prevent uh, a, a lot of these very very haunting realities from progressing. But, you know, you wrote this book, and, and again, it was just a fascinating book for an evangelical theologian to engage. Um, but I have to wonder, what, what would you think differently now, two years later? Because you were warning about Pope Francis and schism, but now, he, now he's talking about it. Yeah, but oddly, I've become a little less worried, I guess. I think I've talked myself into more of the thesis of my current book, the idea that yeah. there is this stalemate that is hard to escape. And I feel like the last few years, you know, the, the Holy Father came in and made a big push around communion for the divorced and remarried. It was then associated with other attempts to liberalize the church. And he got a little way with this. He sort of shifted things somewhat. And we're as we have this conversation, we're waiting to see if there's some kind of shift on priestly celibacy. Right. Um, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But my impression of the last couple of years is that he's, for the moment, he's hit some of the limits of what the liberal side of Catholic debates can effectively shift. And obviously there are people, the Catholic bishops in Germany are determined to push further and out of that pushing maybe you could get the church closer to schism. I'm not, I'm not obviously ruling that possibility out. But I do think that there's a sense in which Pope Francis pushed and conservatives pushed back, and he shifted things a bit in a liberal direction. But the stalemate is very powerful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's one yeah, of the I, lessons. I just have to wonder if it is, though, as an outside observer here, as a studied in a Roman Catholic institution and, and studied Roman Catholic theological method and watches these things very closely, So, it, it, but, but could be completely wrong. 
it seems to me that 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 Francis has uh, has accepted the idea that local jurisdiction uh, can arrange for what amounts to different Catholicisms in different places. I mean, that, that's basically the logic of the Amazonian move. Uh, if it continues, hard to hard to imagine how they, he can pull that back now. And if the German bishops, yeah. but the but the Amazonian move again. It may he we probably shouldn't get too deep into this because it will probably happen sure. between the conversation and the and the airing. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of talk that the move on celibacy will essentially be pushed to a commission that will keep the conversation in Rome. Um, uh, and this happened, you know, they did the big youth synod in Rome about a year ago, and there was an right. expectation that there would be a big shift in church language on homosexuality. And it was very, it was much more modest than right. either liberals hoped or conservatives feared. And I mean, look, I, I, I should, I should say that, yes, since, since I wrote the book, a lot of people, who used to scoff when I talked about schism are talking more about it. <laughs> so I could be, yeah. I could be completely wrong in seeing the stalemate reasserting itself a bit. And and I do, I, I think it's of a piece with the sh- liberal shift in the culture. I think it's sure. real. Oh, I yeah. think Francis's liberalization mm-hmm. is real. The center of gravity for Catholic debates has shifted since John Paul II. I just don't know if the revolution or the schism is actually at hand, or if this is just this sort of, again, like these, it's just this endless extension of the debates of 1968 and 1975. Yeah, very interesting. And I, I, I raise this primarily because as an evangelical, I recognize we're, we're not on an island uh, in, a, in this cultural moment. And uh, you did have the sense that a part of the strength of conservative arguments uh, in the 1980s and 90s and beyond was the combined strength of uh, of arguments that were coming with with such consistency from from the Vatican, especially from John Paul II, uh, the, from the theology of the body to uh, and, and and Benedict's understanding of Western civilization, which I mean, so many Catholics seem to be embarrassed about now. I actually think his Regenberg speech, although impolitique, was uh, was basically uh, articulating truths from which it's very difficult to retreat. Honestly, but. Uh, you know, and and I I will tell you that as an evangelical, and I mean a, a Protestant evangelical, nail the theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door, evangelical, uh, culturally and in terms of the great battle for everything from metaphysics and ontology to morality, it's feeling lonelier out there these days. Oh, and I I don't I, I don't blame you for thinking of that for feeling that at all. I, I think that there's no question that in this Catholic seesaw the more liberal side has gained much more power in Rome. And there isn't there to the extent that there's a kind of, you know, religious conservative Christian conservative alliance or united front across the Western world. And that's obviously made more complicated in the age of populism too. It doesn't have its leadership in the Vatican right now at all. There's been, there's been, there's, there's been a shift in that sense in terms of which, figures and Catholic factions are in power that has left, I think, conservative evangelicals more isolated in the culture in the West than they were when I, certainly when I was sure. you know, becoming Catholic 20, 20 years ago. There's no question. I know in advance any conversation with Ross Douth, that's going to be a fascinating conversation. The issue is we will simply not have enough time to talk about the obvious things uh, to, to think about. 
But Ross, thank you so much for the generosity of your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, clearly I want the listeners to this program to read your new book, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Thanks for joining with me today. Thanks so much, Al. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.